Hi, welcome to another episode of The Hot Ball with me, Eamon Fennell, courtesy of AIG and Dublin GEA. On this episode, we're talking to a former Ryder Cup captain, all-round golf legend, and Bally Bowden and Dublin GEA fan and player, Paul McGinley. In this episode, we talk about everything from leadership, culture, discipline, pressure moments, uh, how to connect with people emotionally. I really enjoyed it, got a lot out of it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go. Well, Paul, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on to the hot ball with Dublin GEA and AIG. It's great to have you involved in this. You know, we've kind of expanded the program out now and great to push place with some, obviously, players of the GEA, but people who have an interest in Dublin GEA as well, which I know you do. But I want to go back again, reeling in the ears a bit about your time in GEA and how you got involved in it. Your dad, Mick, was a big influence for you, was he? Yeah, dad played with Donegal and uh, born and raised. My mom and dad are both Donegal. Uh, they moved down to Dublin before I was born. Uh, I was born here, the oldest of five. And like I'm sure you, Eamon, everybody else in Ireland, they grew up in a very Catholic Irish background. Uh, went to the local Christian Brother School. Uh, Boys National School first, Christian Brother School. Played football with them. Uh, had a lot of success actually, particularly hurling in the national school. A fellow called Fitton Walsh was a teacher there who played with Leash, and uh, we've got the Crow Park every year, which is great, uh, winning most of the times. And then moving on to Bally Bowden, we had a good team there too. Um, uh, growing up through the years in Bally Bowden from, I guess, under 12 right through, and I played a couple of senior practice matches, so all the way through every age group from there. And uh, also Cloister Aina, uh, Christian Brother School that I went to too. Success hurling and football there, but I was better at uh, I was better at Gaelic than I was at uh, at hurling. I played a bit of soccer too, but I wasn't particularly good at the soccer. I didn't really enjoy it, not like I did the GAA. That's for sure. No, like the GEA, I I was talking to Brian Steins, and he was telling me that you play with his brother Jim as well for for Bally Bowden. Yeah. Did you play many games with him or? Yeah, all through the age groups, we had a really good team. You know, if you look back through the history books, we were uh, we were the best team in Dublin around the early '80s when we were all in the underage group through minor through 21s. And uh, Jim was midfield, I was left half forward, and uh, that's kind of uh, been a little small fella. Uh, <laughs> my job was to pick up the scraps from Jim in midfield. He'd be double marked, you see, the big tall Jim. Noel Quinn was from that era as well, too. He played up the road in Grim the Castle. That was one of our local derbies. Um, so it's great. You know, I stayed in touch with Quinny still right to, right to now. And uh, it was the same with Jim. You know, every time I used to play golf down Australia, Australian Open or whatever, I was playing in or every time I was in Melbourne, I always look him up and we, we'd hook up or he'd come to the golf or whatever. And we stayed in touch that way. And uh, it was really sad, obviously, what happened. His dad, Brian, was the... Um, was the coach of the team with a fella called Jimmy Fitzpatrick. They were the two coaches. Um, and then Brian Jr. was a couple of years behind us. Um, so they were great times. Listen, I look back with very, very fond memories. I had a brilliant childhood. And uh, every time I come back to Ireland now, you know, I always make a visit up around Fur House, up around the, uh, I was up there actually the other day and, and uh, you know, bring back old memories. It's, it's great. I had a great time. Yeah, like you, you've definitely kept in that connection with the GEA. And I know even speaking to Kieran Whelan over the years, which are, your partnership with Alliance as well, like you know, the yeah, that, that love for the GA, did that ever leave you? Like, were you ever on like on tour and going, I need to get home and watch the Sunday game? Was that ever <laughs> part of your mindset? 
Well, when I was on tour, we didn't have Zoom and didn't have all the internet facilities that we have nowadays. Um, you know, it was only at the last kind of decade or so that uh, that's kind of evolved and I've been able to watch the GAA go and all those kind of stuff uh, around the world. And I still do it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I always followed it when I was on, when I was, uh, on tour, never missed anything, what was going on. Um, and, yeah, you know, I have a great interest in it. To be honest, it's my favorite sport. If you ask me, golf or really? GAA, it's yeah. on the TV. Which one are you going to watch? To be honest, oh, yeah, if there's, a, if there's a Gaelic match on, a good Gaelic match on now, you know, championship match or a league final or semi-final or something, and there's golf on, there's only one thing I'm watching. And often when I'm working with Sky now, when we in, in the trailer, we've got this big, luxurious trailer when we're in America. And uh, so when you're, and there's a commentary booth at the end of it, and then there's like a, like a, what they call a green room, you know, for, for what they call a talent. So myself or Butch Harmon or Monty when he was working with us or Rich Beam or whoever. So, so we'd have this big TV. So we'd come out of commentary and be watching the big TV, uh, you know, following the golf so that, you know, when our commentary turn, we'll, we'll go back in. <laughs> but uh, I'd always have the iPad underneath it with the GAA on. So uh, I was kind of watching the two screens at the same time and also educating the lads about a real sport. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I've talked to Shane Larry a few times and I know he, like, he'd be in the same mindset as you of, like, he yeah. wants to go home and watch it. And obviously the, the links with Ireland and, and his passion for it has never wavered at all. And that seems to be the same with you. Like, even... When I was uh, I was talking to a few lads prior to this, I said Brian Steins, Kieran Whelan, like they all just said that yeah, you have a natural love for the game that comes across. Like even you know when you speak to someone like Michal Murhertig, you can just rattle off dates, names, you know, off the drop of a hat. Like you're pretty similar in terms of you've kept them connections over the years. You've never kind of moved away from it. When you like when you go back to your days of playing. Were you like that close to a lot of players in terms like I know you were close to Jim and all that kind of stuff, but when you started to see other players, the likes of Kevin Moran and all these, were you ever in contact with them about trying to take learnings from GEA from other sports when you started to see other players grow and develop? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kevin Moran was my my hero, uh, very much growing up, you know, and and uh, I got to know Kevin very well, still do, and sometimes we go on holidays together. Now he's great crack, great fun, and and a smart guy, obviously, and very good in business. And and that transition that he's done from GAA into soccer, and then soccer into business has been, uh, you know, as good as anybody's done. Uh, a great crack, great fun, and his his brother actually Ray has done a few uh, a few. Uh, Surgeries on my knee, a bit like you, I'm sure, of most <laughs> GA people. Ray, Ray has had the scalpel at multiple. Um, yeah, I've had, I've had, that's what kind of stopped me playing in GAA is I broke my knee hand uh, when I was 19 and, and the end of me playing GAA. And, and, and I've, had, uh, I've had nine surgeries on it since. Um, but yeah, going back to it, of course, I see all the guys and, and you know, a lot of, a lot of learnings from the GAA and certainly when I was Ryder Cup captain, um, there was a, there was a lot of ideas that I brought, um, from the GAA into the team room, uh, in Glen Eagles and the players didn't need to know about it or what it was aware of. And, you know, most of it was what I call engagement of the heart. You know, you grow up in your county and, you know, whatever that be in Ireland and, you know, you want to play for the local village or the local town, you go through the age groups and then you escalate into their senior team and minor team and senior team and. Then you hopefully wear the county jersey and represent them in Crow Park. You're representing the town, the people, the place that you're from, and I, it's a, it's a very very powerful connection. Um, and it's certainly something that I tried to bring into my Ryder Cup captaincy or my my 
um, in my role as captain was was you know to, you know Sergio Garcia for example you know you you're not just there representing a faceless blue flag of, of Europe you know you're representing Spain your town your village the people that you're from and you know to the point of putting photographs in their rooms and their bedrooms and stuff like that of their hometown and their home village so you really try to connect with the heart because it's one thing getting into people's heads whether it be in business or sport um it's one thing into their heads but the real magic happens when you engage their heart and, and, and get, get them really really uh, engaged for for reasons that uh, are very um poignant to them um you know did very you emotional that? to them and, and that's put, what i try to do did you put pictures into the rooms of their village and towns yeah and... yeah yeah, wow. yeah. I, I made them yeah and, and the point would be you're not representing this faceless blue flag you know forget about that you know martin keimer i remember from Germany, uh, Germany had won the when I was captain in fourteen. Germany had won the um, had won the uh, the World Cup soccer that year. Um, you know, and and Martin is a quiet, very reserved in some ways German guy, uh, nice guy, uh, but you know, very different personality than say a Neil Poulter or Lee Westwood. And you know that German in English, they always have a bit of a trouble bonding. You know, and so there was there was a, there was a you know pulling him aside well in advance. So this is right up and say. And look, Martin, you're you're not just there, red flag, or Ian Poulter, or Lee Westwood, or any other players' um, teammate. You know, you're there as an individual force representing Germany, town, the village, the place that you're from. Because everybody from Germany who's going to tune in to watch this Ryder Cup, yes, they want to see Europe doing well. But the first question is, how's Keimer doing? So every time you're over a pot, every time you're over a shot, just remember. You know, those people at home, that's who you're representing. And, you know, that's a very much a GA philosophy. You know, another little thing would have been the, the colours every day. Yeah, had a color, but there was a theme to what the colors were. They weren't just these. Oh, that goes well with that color because you designed the, the clothes as uh, well. Not you don't design the clothes, but you designed the colors. You choose the colors as the captain, and um, you know. So every day I had a different theme, and again that was engaged something. Part like one day we wore colors of Scotland because we were representing there. Uh, we, we were playing in Scotland. Another day we wore the colors of Seve Ballesteros, which is always navy, navy and white, you know, and then. I had a, an away, a home and an away uh, theme at the weekend, which was, uh, you know, our away strip, uh, which was very much uh, yellow of, of Europe uh, uh, and then blue as a smaller colour and then reversed that into the home strip on, on the Sunday where it was very much dominant in blue. So all of those things were ideas that communicated to the players and it was just to give a little narrative and, and tune them into what was really important. And I think, and it's a bit like, again, that comes from wearing the county colours and the county jersey. I can't believe the level of detail you went into. It's actually it's amazing <laughs> to hear like that's how you zone in to connect with people because you know the, the when I was interviewing Coach Cabinet, he had it as earned belief. So like you can't like, trust you can't like just build trust overnight. It takes time, but you have to connect with people emotionally to actually to fully understand them and engage with them. You seem to to really do that, and, I, and I'll get into the Alex Ferguson piece in a minute because I know that was a, a big part of it. But in, in terms of your business side of stuff, you work was it, is it London Business School you were involved in as a fellowship? Yeah, does that come yeah in? that kind of emanated? Yeah, that that kind of emanated out of out of the captaincy. You know, it went obviously went well, and I ended up doing a lot of public speaking and talks and stuff like that, and. And, and, and they had seen me uh, and they invited me into the school and they wanted to do a case study to present to their students uh, on, on leadership and, and use what we did in Glen Eagles and 
so I did a case study with them and, and presented that to the students and and kind of what emanated out of that was they made me an executive fellow which is kind of like an honorary lecturer or an honorary um, an honorary student of the uh, or honorary lecturer of the of the of, uh, of London Business School, one of the top business schools in the world. And I was the only and first ever uh, sports person they ever did that too, because they don't have a sporting pedigree. And um, they're obviously a business school. Um, so I'm you know I'm still there, and I've just written a book with them on it, on leadership as well, kind of combining principles that I believe in and what I've experienced in sport, and 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 the head of leadership um, has, has has worked with me on that in, in business, and we kind of married the two together and created a created a, a book called landscape of success uh oh, wow. so, yeah 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 it's been a it's been a, it's been a great relationship and what am i there now five six maybe six years and, and every year i go in and present the case study um and it's funny you know when i going back to the gaa again when i go in and remember this is very much an international school so you'll have chinese you'll have Indians. I mean, I'd say only ten percent will be British or Irish that will be in there, um, if that even. You know, most of it is. Uh, it's called. It's it kind of. It's like a really crash course, um, and it's generally for uh, uh, men or women who are kind of maybe graduating to take over the family business, uh, which could be huge, or they're graduating, finishing school, haven't come out of university, uh, or somebody who's kind of changing occupations um, and and want to re-educate themselves with modern ways of leadership. Um, so you'd have about 100, 150 in each class. It's called a Sloan. Um, it's called a Sloan uh, course. It's a crash course of about six to nine months. Um, and uh, I would come in and, and they would have the case study and, and, and they'd uh, kind of the case study for two or three weeks. And then they would um, study the case study. And then the lecturer will come in and uh, present the case study and they would ask questions about it. and They'd be giving him insights to it. And all the time I'd be sitting at the back of the class. Not, they wouldn't know that I was there. And then at the end, uh, he'd invite me down and then I would do a Q&A for an hour, an hour and a half. But what was so brilliant is, as I say, there's only 10%, if that, are British or Irish. Um, and it's amazing to hear the Indians, the Chinese, men and women, talking about the county colors, talking about the GAA. It's like, it's just <laughs> incredible. It's something that they knew nothing about. Uh, so in my own little small way, I'm, I'm kind of spreading the word of the GAA. I'm brilliant. Uh, where, when's the book up? The book is out. Well, I have it. Yeah, I haven't published it. Uh, well, I published it. I've self-published it. Uh, I didn't do it. Um, it's not done really for commercial reasons. It was done to kind of condense um, all my, my learnings. But uh, yeah, I have several. If anybody wants one, we can arrange it. Just contact well, me through. Through Twitter probably be the best thing. Just send me a send me a message, a direct message through Twitter, and I can uh, arrange for it to be sent. But yeah, there's a lot of GAA pictures in there, a lot of principles. There's eighteen. I did it eighteen as in eighteen holes. There's eighteen principles on, on leadership. Um, oh wow! And um, yeah, it, it's a marrying between business um, leadership and business and leadership in, in in sport, and certainly through the eyes of the Ryder Cup in particular that I was involved in. Well, I'm actually doing my master's part-time in UCD Smurfit Business School and I like naturally read uh, leadership books and culture books and reading stuff about the All Blacks now, about the yeah. Clyde Woodward and obviously Alex Ferguson. So I, I definitely love to reference a few of your, uh, your points sure. and your principles in my assignments, but I know you're a big fan of Alex Ferguson and he obviously played a part in the Ryder Cup as well when he came in to speak with the lads. Did you just kind of give him free reign to, and like I, knew, I know we talked about the geese flying overhead and he has the picture of the lad sitting on the bar of the, in his dressing room. And I've, heard, I've listened and watched a few different interviews that he's done. 
did you just give him free reign to talk about whatever he wanted or did you have points that you wanted him to kind of get across to the lads? Well, that's what I learned most from him, Emma, more than anything else was. Um, um, so let me just take a little time to go through the relationship with him. I played with him about 10 years previously in the JP McManus Pro-Am down in Limerick. Um, but I hadn't met him over 10 years. Um, and he just retired from Man United and I became Ryder Cup captain around that time. And there was a number of challenges that I felt I, was, uh, I, I needed help with um, in terms of leadership. You know, I'd played in three Ryder Cups. I'd been a vice captain on two. I'd been a Seve Trophy captain on two. We'd won everything I'd been involved in. Uh, I was very lucky to have great teammates and you know, great learning experiences. I'd played under or captained. Uh, everybody from Baldo to Seve to Monty to Rory, I mean, any a who's who, a Lazabal, wherever you want to go, um, Ian Wisdom, wherever you want to go in a history of, of great history of European golf in the last 25 years. I'd, I'd either been in, a t- I'd been in a team room with them one way or other, either playing under them or, or, or captain them. So I had a lot of information. Uh, I, I was that soldier. I hadn't done three Ryder Cups, but I, I was never, for example, I'll just give you one of the things. I was, I was never a superstar in the team. I, I was always kind of six to 12 in the team. A guy who played three matches out of five. Yeah, obviously an important member of the team, but I was never the superstar status, like I say, a Rory would have been. Um, so, uh, you know, the questions that I wanted to get some insights on were questions like, how do you deal with superstars? How do you deal with superstars when you're captaining them? Um, you know, I, I was a soldier of six to 12 or, or kind of even three to 12, but the top three players in the team, you know, what kind of pressures do they feel? How do you deal with them? How do you position them in the media? Um, so, so those kind of questions I, I had, a, you know, I wanted to get more information on. So I looked around, I thought, well, you know, who, 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 who would be the person who could help me, kind of mentor me on this? And, and Ferguson was the one who came to mind. So I got his phone number, uh, and, or his email, rather, and, and I contacted him. And uh, so he ran me back and he said, look, he says, I'm really busy. Um, I just, you know, a lot of teams are looking for me and things. Look, he says, I like golf, but, you know, I don't think I'm going to have time for this. I, I'm really busy. I've just retired. I don't want to be jumped back in again. Uh, and I said, look, I said, Let's kind of have lunch with you. Um, so he said, yeah. He said, but you're going to have to come up to Manchester. So uh, I said, okay, no problem. Uh, so I, we arranged a date and I went up to Manchester. Went into this little small um, kind of mom and pop, you'd have to say, hotel uh, in a place called Alderley Edge. Um, uh, you know, nice, nice kind of three-star three hotel, I'd say, on the edge of, 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 uh, of, of Manchester. Uh, Alderley Edge is where he lives. And... Um, so we met him there and uh, he had this little corner table down the back and he says, oh, this is where I've done all the years. This is, I've used this as my main meeting room. Sometimes I meet the players here, a certain player if I want to speak to him and have lunch or sometimes I'll meet an agent or a player I'm trying to sign. So he said, there's great history in this little place here. Um, so we, we were having lunch and we're having a great lunch and he opened up a bottle of wine like uh, you know all the famous stories about him liking a glass of wine is absolutely true he's got his own cellar downstairs the owner brings up his own wine thing so we're having a great lunch and obviously I was careful I wasn't I wasn't uh, really drinking because I had loads of questions I had my notes all out and I wanted to ask him um, so kind of that's how it emanated we got on really well uh, and uh, when I started explaining to him the different ideas that I had um, and, and things questions that I had he was giving me the feedback I was taking down notes and all of those things and and, and kind of one thing led to another and, and he said look he said he says I like where you're going here I, I like the way you're approaching this he said you know if you want to meet again in the next uh, couple of years you know when you're captain you know there's no problem come on up again we can do it again and kind of emanated from there um, so when it came 
after meeting him, I, I think I met him three times over the two years, as well as a couple of phone calls and, and a couple of emails. And, and as it got closer to Glen Eagles, about six months before it, I asked him, I said, look, I'd love you to come. And we normally have a guest speaker on the Tuesday night that will come in and speak to the players. You know, I'd be really honoured if you would be that guy. It's in Scotland. There's a good connection there. All the players love uh, love Man United. Um, well, not all of them, but a lot of them, <laughs> they all love soccer. Uh, and I said, you know, the caddies as well, the caddies are really important. And if you were to go in and, and, and you know, give a talk to the caddies, because they've got their own separate room next door to the players, um, you know, it'd be great to go in and you just appear. And he said, look, he says, I'll do it, but I don't want any media. Uh, you don't have to tell anybody, not even the players. Nobody's to know because I don't want everybody asking the next six months about the Ryder Cup. And also he said, it'll put a lot of pressure on you. And he said, the second thing is, um, I want you to go away and I want you to write an email. I'm give you a lot of thought. And I want you to write an email and I want you to write down six biggest challenges that you face as a team to win the Ryder Cup. You tell me what those six are, because there's no point in me coming in and just talking off piece about what I want to talk about, because I don't, I want to know what your challenges are. So if you tell me exactly what those challenges are, I'll prepare something and I'll go in without referencing them. And I'll just talk about those six things and leave them hanging in the air. So as you come in later in the week for your team meetings, you can then reference what Alex Ferguson said at the start. So it'll just empower your word and give you a little bit more, um, give the players a little bit more layer uh, on the challenges that you're facing. So it was all very planned and all very focused. And it was certainly along those um, along those lines of those six principles. And, and that's, that's really what it was. And, and it was very simple. He was incredibly humble. Um, and he also gave me a lot of confidence. That, that, that was what was really interesting about him was, you know, he'd say something like, um, you know, I, I'd say a challenge, what do you think of this? And how do you think I should handle this? And his always answer would be, well, what do you think? What, what, what's your instinct telling you? And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of thinking about if I do this and I say that or I do this. He says, I love that. That's brilliant. That's exactly what you should do. I'll tell you why. And then he would give me an example of his own kind of stuff. So what he was doing was just give me the information, but he was also empowering me and also giving me a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of confidence. So in a lot of ways, you know, it was, it, he's a strong psychologist in a lot of ways. Um, and he was playing me as well as giving me the information. And, uh, that was something I was very appreciative of. That's coaching 101, isn't it? Like, you know, trying <laughs> yeah. to empower and get you to realize the answer for yourself, which is uh, yeah. which is great that you kind of had that relationship with him because, you know, when, when, when I look at leaders and I, I read a lot on about different people and how they inspire, storytelling plays a massive part in that and how being yeah, able does, to yeah. tell a story. So it sounds like he was able to tell the story of of his experience of how he got there. And then it just led you into, okay, well, these are the six things that I know. Now I have to just layer what he said on top of it, which is a great way to do it because if you're trying to just hammer a message, it's hard to get it to resonate with people if you're just kind of enforcing it without any background or without any story to tell on it. So I would have loved to have been in that dressing room because uh, uh, like even stuff I've watched a few interviews with him on Harvard in uh, on Harvard Business Post and Business Review. I, I, I'd say you, you know you can't come out of a of a meeting with him without having that sense of energy, that buzz, that excitement just to go out and, and kind of start playing. So there's definitely we did a we we did a, I got him down to London Business School as well too, and the two of us did a talk uh, together in London Business School to the students and the faculty there. So that's on YouTube as well too. If you I'll get a chance to have a look at it, it anybody wants to look at it, it's about half an hour long or forty minutes long, and and he's great. Uh, I must say, I'm really 
uh, I, I learned a huge amount from him and uh, he's easy company, you know, he's great company. But you've you've kind of evolved this again because like as I said like I'm a, I'm a big fan of you and in terms of your leadership and the principles and the culture that you created in that team and I've been lucky enough to go to a few talks that you're at and one was with the Irish Open uh, there was you doing a pre-event with uh, AP McCoy now AP was telling a few stories about his career and his his love for golf and how he got into it but when you were talking, you were talking about like different challenges that you face in the recent game, and one of them is stats. Well, it was like we can. You were talking about like you could get stats on everything. You could get different stats for different players, and you could nearly get all too consumed and bogged down and just reading the stats and not having that emotional connection because you're just looking at everything on a piece of paper. Like the role of stats has become so big in in GAA. Like uh, I'll give you an example. For, from a club point of view, we now have meeting rooms in the clubhouse that are just like, you know, for video analysis. We have huddle on our phones. You know, we're getting matches sent to his training session. It, it's nearly become, from a club point of view, all too consuming. So I imagine in a professional setup, it's even more amplified. Yeah, it was. You know, the, the stats thing in, in golf, and it's become a big part of, of, of the Ryder Cup now. You look at what we did in two years ago in, in, in France where we absolutely blitzed the Americans and we did that pretty much statistically. You know, it's the statisticians had a huge role to play in the picking of the team um, uh, and also the setup of the golf course. And basically, we threw the Americans, they had no idea how to play a golf course that was very narrow with heavy, heavy rough. Um, you know, and, and, and a lot of the algorithms that they put in place uh, put, put the pairings together. Um, and Thomas uh, Bjorn, the captain, kind of oversaw all that. Um, so, you know, going back to my captaincy um which was in 2014 so i was a, i was a vice captain to monty in 2010 alazabal in 2012 and, and in in those two we didn't have a stats team then i was the statistician as one of the vice captains i was the guy that came along and did all the research and had you know our best 10 putters ranked uh, 1 to 10 or 1 to 12 uh, our best uh, drivers in terms of accuracy, one to twelve, our biggest hitters, and the strengths and weaknesses of every player, and, and, and had them in a kind of a file that, that I would put that on the table when we were choosing the pairings, or Monty or, or Lazabal were choosing the pairings, and so it was very raw, it was very basic. But when I became captain in, in at the end of uh, beginning of 2013, um, the first thing I did was employ a full-time uh, statistics team. Uh, and that was the first time it had ever been used in, by either either America or Europe in the Ryder Cup. I used a company called StrokeArbage.com, and why I chose them was they already in, in, ensconced in golf. They were starting to do a lot of statistics for players, uh, Rory being one of them. They were very familiar with the players' games. Um, and I wasn't too obsessed about the players. I, what I did was I reverse engineered it. Um, and my question to them was, okay, guys, Here's, the, here's what I want you to do first and foremost before we do anything is that I, we've had 10 tournaments played in Glen Eagles uh, in the Johnny Walker in the last 10 years. I want you to go into the winners and the performers in those 10 events um, and I want you to give me the correlations. And I don't want 50 correlations. I want four or five correlations on one page in big headlines. That's all I want. I don't want anything else. Show me the correlations on this golf course. What's the key to unlocking this golf course? Because every golf course has got a different key to unlock it. You know, if you go to Augusta National, it's very much about the second golf course. Uh, sorry, second shot um, to really play that. There's a huge correlation between the best iron player, the guy who hits his irons the best that week, 
uh, and, and the guy who wins. If you go to the Open Championship, it's very much about ball control. You've got to play it from the fairway um, and you've got to be able to move the ball left to right, up and down because of the winds in the Lynx golf course. So every golf course has got different keys. So I wanted to find out from Glen Eagles, from these guys, crawl through the stats, show me the correlations because they're the stats for all the winners and all the people who played the previous 10 years. So, for example, you take that and, and one of the things that came out very clear was uh, the performance on the par fives. And that's not always the case in every golf course, but in this one it was. So you've got to really hit the par fives. Um, so the guy who generally played the par fives the best was the guy that won the tournament, or if he didn't, he was in the top three. So that was one of the stats. Uh, second was big hitting was another one that was really close. It wasn't a short hitter's little pokey golf course. You have to be powerful. You have to be big around there. So I take that forward again too, you know, going down to say my picks, for example, Luke Donald, who's a short straight hitter and, and you know, Lee Westwood, who's a pretty powerful hitter. Um, I had to choose between those two and I went with the powerful one, Lee Westwood, because the stats were telling me that you need to be powerful to play around this golf course and Lee certainly had more power than Luke did, uh, even though the form was quite similar. So I was picking the horses for courses, which I'm a great believer in. Uh, and then rolling on a little bit more into more detail, if you look at all the pairings that I put in place for the foursomes, which is the ultimate shot, um, I had a big hitter and a shorter hitter in every group. And the idea was that, you know, we talked about the four par fives being really key. There was four par fives in the golf course and also a drivable par four. Um, now, here was the interesting thing. Four of those five were even numbers, right? So what I did was when I had a shorter hitter and a bigger hitter, the big hitter would drive in even numbers. So when I'm sitting down with Graham McDowell, for example, and trying to talk him into playing with Victor Dubasson, which he didn't want to do initially, <laughs> uh, I had to show him the stats. And I said, look, the key to unlocking this golf course, D-Mac, is you've got you've to attack the par fives. Now, you're one of the shorter hitters of the team, but you bring a lot of other assets. But what I want to do is I want to pair you with the Busan because, first of all, I need somebody really mature on the shoulder. This guy is kind of left of left field, wild as a March hare. But I need somebody, and I feel you're you know, probably our most mature person uh, as a person on the golf course as well as off it. And I, I know he, you, you can contain him. And the second thing is he's a big hitter and you're not. So here's what I want you to pair together. You know, when you're playing... Uh, strategically, um, I want him to be the driver on, on the even numbers. Because here's the example, I took out the yardage book and showed him, your average drive in the second hole of power five, he can't get home in two because it's over water from 280 yards. Because he's 30 yards longer than you, you're only be going in from 250 yards and he can't get home. So that's, all of a sudden he's going, oh, okay, that works, yeah. And is there that much of a correlation? Yeah, there's a massive correlation between playing the power five as well. So we attack the power fives and that drivable power four. You know, come to the drive over par four. There was a carry of 280 yards over the cross bunkers, and then it would roll onto the green. So obviously, Graham couldn't carry that. So if he was playing that hole, he'd have to lay back, and Victor would have a 100 yard shot in. Whereas if Victor was playing, he was able to carry it and get it around the green. So he'd either be on the green or he'd be chipping. So that's kind of where it is. So it was reverse engineered from the golf course back uh, in, in, into the players. No, like as you were talking there, I was kind of just thinking the horses for courses analogy of. Dublin GAA, like if you if you think of the likes of Owen O'Gara over the last few years when Dublin have come up against big physical full back lines, that's when you'd see the likes of Owen coming in and and even like to have someone as mature as G Mac to say, right, your your game is now changing, like you know, you're gonna have to sacrifice a certain element of your game to benefit the team. And when I think of the likes of Kev Mack, who I'm sure would rather start every game, but he knows his role and knows how to go into the team and bring that energy in the last 10, 15, 20 minutes. You know, that, that's a selfless act. And, and I have more admiration for people like that who 
who know what they bring to a team and are willing to make the sacrifice for the for the greater good. Yeah, it sounds like you kind of really hold honed in on that to get the best out of people in their roles. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the I'm kind of the idea right in the second book, uh, <laughs> and if I do, it would be um, it it would be uh, along the lines of the individual before the team. Um, in this modern world, um, I know this is a little bit of left field. I just need to explain it a bit. Uh, everybody talks about team, team, team. Whether it's business, it's all about the team. Whether it's GAA, it's all about the team. Ride a cup, it's all about the team. It's all about the team, team, team. Everything, all we hear is team, team, team. It's team effort. Now, um, I, I'll, I'll challenge that. I'll challenge that. For me, it's about the individual first. Um, and what can you contribute to the team? And, and it's about individually managing uh, each of the players and, and putting them, putting their role in and making it really clear as to what their role is within the team before it goes to the team. Um, so, for example, my, my team meetings were no longer than 10 minutes every night. They were at 9 o'clock and they were 10, 9 o'clock to 9.15 latest. But all my management was done, not just then, but in the months and years leading up to the Ryder Cup, was done on a one-to-one basis. Um, because you know, it, it's about firing up that guy, going back to the principle again of GAA, you know, and Sergio Garcia and making it all about Spain for him and, you know, making it about his career and making it about why it's important uh, or what role he's going to play. I mean, let's go a little bit more into, into Graham. Let's go back to that partnership again with, with Victor. It's, 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 it's really, it's a big part of the case study and it's actually quite interesting because um, when I set Graham down, um, I said, Graham, I've got good news and bad news. And, and, and the good news is, um, well, the bad news, first of all, is that uh, I want you to play with Victor, and of course he's resisting this. I don't want to play with Victor, you know. I've, you know, I've won the U.S. Open. I've been a big star in the Cups. I've hold a win and Paul. I, you know, I, you know, I, I want to play five matches. Everybody wants to play five matches, Graham. A little bit like we were saying about Kevin Mack there a minute, a minute ago, and I said, look, I've got a different role for you here, but I want you to play. First of all, I need you to be looking after him, as I explained, the maturity and playing with him and the big hitting and the shorter hitting. And secondly, I only want you to play one round each day. I want you to play the foursomes the first day, foursomes the second day. He says, I hate foursomes. Everything's I'm good at foursomes because I'm short and I'm straight, but I much prefer to play the four ball. I say, I know, but I, this is where I think your strength is. And if you do these things for me, if you would do this the first two days and buy into this and give 100% to, to looking after Victor and playing the foursomes, that when it comes to the Sunday in the singles, um, and nobody knows this yet, um, I'd like you to play number one in the singles. So now I'm playing to his ego of building him up as leading the team out in singles. And, and I said, here's why I want you to do it. First of all, because I feel you're the ballsiest player we have on the team. Um, and I believe street fighters should be playing at number one, not our best player, because you put your best player out number one and he loses, not long as a boost to the 11 guys coming, or, or a blow to the 11 guys coming behind that our best player has been taken out. But it's also a boost to the Americans. So I don't want to put Rory McIlroy in that position. You know, I want to put you in that position. You're a street fighter. And the second thing is, whoever you play from the American team, historically, they'll do one of two things. They'll either put their best player out there or they'll put the guy who's played the best that week. I can guarantee you both of those players will have played 72 holes in the previous two days. You'll only have played 36 and you're going to be fresh. So music goes, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense now. And so, you know, I was, I was, I was, it was yin and yang and balancing them up and yeah, managing yeah. him as an individual and getting him on side. And that's why I go about individual first. So now GMAC had a real clear, he didn't tell anybody, I didn't tell anybody um, what, what the role was, but he knew, me and him knew that he was going to be playing number one in the singles on, on, uh, on Sunday, uh, but he had to play this role first. And, and he was completely bought in. He won all three of his games and, and he was a star, a star of the Ryder Cup. And so, so, you know, you, you take away a little bit, but you're trying to 
Yeah, that, that's the key to being to be to being a coach and, and leader, I believe. And and obviously, Jim, Gavin displayed that very much with Dublin, you know, and how, as you say, there with O'Gara and, and Kevin, how how you know the roles that they played. So very similar what I was doing with Graham. No, absolutely, and 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 like I think that accountability piece of like, yes, it's a team, but you are accountable for your actions, you know, like and. Like for any team, you know, in order to help the team, you have to be responsible for for yourself. And like you, I think that accountability piece is, is crucial, and it's a key component to to the dependability. Then, so you need to depend on me to be able to do what you're asking of me. And unless you have the accountability and the dependability, I don't think you can get that that trust that you were trying to build with the guys and 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 connect with them emotionally the way you did with the stuff with the pictures in the dressing room, the colours on match day and all that kind of stuff because they don't buy into that unless all these other pieces of the jigsaw match together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, absolutely. No. There's got to be continuity. I mean, I, I was big on that. Continuity and simplicity as well. You can't make it too difficult. Going back to the data again, you know, these data guys will just bamboozle you with stats if you let them. You know, so I, these two guys that were working were very much nerds in, in terms of they love figures, they love stats. <laughs> I said, I'm not interested in the small correlations, not interested in reams of stats. You know, when they have to present to me, they have to present to me with half a page. And that's all it is. I want half a page and I want three or four headlines. And that's it. And you've only got 10 minutes to present to me because I don't want to be sitting here for an hour bamboozled with a little, you know, there's a lot of talk as well too about, you know, the, the, the margins, you know, the 1%, uh, marginal gains here, there and everywhere. I, I, I'm a, I was a lot more concerned with the big correlations. Forget about the marginals. You can get, you can get lost in the marginals. Uh, it's all about the big stuff uh, and making sure that you get the big pieces, the big pieces of the jigsaw in place. Well, you, you now that you have all these big pieces in place and you like, uh, I'm going to relate it back to GEA. So you have Dean Rock who's kicking a free kick to win an All-Ireland Final against Mayo and you have Lee Keegan throwing GPS trackers at him like you know all these distractions all these different things and, and, and Dean actually is running a, a camp at the moment for people around free taking that I think would be really interesting not just from the skills of, of actually technique of kicking but actually that mindset and the thought process that goes into them pressure moments when you're making a put in the Ryder Cup like what is going through your head or what are you telling your your team in them key moments to reinforce the positive messages that they, like when they're in that, that moment, what are you saying to them or what are you thinking it yourself? So uh, just going back again, because you'll see uh, as we're talking here, there's, there's a lot of, con what I try to create was continuity and different layers of that continuity. So let's just go back a little bit to my original conversation with, uh, with Ferguson about the six challenges. He, I said, I want you to write down the six challenges and that's what I'm going to talk on. Um, what I did was I had six huge images, kind of six foot by six foot, massive images, really evocative that were hung throughout, uh, you know, our, our, either, either the floor where we, all our bedrooms were on or uh, the playing area, the private area of the European team in that section of the hotel that we were staying in. And I had these massive images um, that all represented, six images, all represented the words that Ferguson was going to uh, be talking about, that I was going to reference uh, at each of the meetings. Um, and I had those hung around in important places within uh, the private area of, of, of the team, and whether it be the hotel room, the locker room, or the, um, or the area that we were eating in, uh, in, in the hotel. And um, one of the big challenges uh, for me was, was um, 
well, it was, they were all, you know, equally important. Um, but, you know, one of them was we will be the rock when the storm comes. And that's about, that's about resilience. And that's about the fact that we're playing against a really, really strong team. And, and uh, we're not to take our, our foot off the gas uh, in, in any way because, uh, you know, that's what happened in Medina. That's why we lost Medina because they got complacent. And we're able to come back. We're able to establish some momentum and off we went to win. Um, but to answer your question, the other one that we had, which was in the breakfast room, um, as the players were eating breakfast, it was a huge, as I say, a massive image, took over the whole room. And it was a picture of Justin Rose. You might have seen this picture. When he hold a putt in Medina on the 17th hole, um, it was, he held it from about 50 foot across the green against Phil Mickelson with about 15 foot break. And it went in and he just looked up to heaven like that and he put his arms out wide like this. And it was like, oh my God, can you believe this has just happened? So what I did was I got that image um, and, and I got an artistic friend of mine to Photoshop it. And what we did was we put smoke out of both of his hands like this and the smoke rose up behind his head. And then we had thousands of pictures of people behind. Basically, and the idea would be that you have got 50,000 people uh, who are going to be at the Ryder Cup or 60,000 in the palm of your hands, ready to scream and shout. So when you're standing on the first tee, one of the things I hate, one of my passions was, ex-players are great at this, um, is to tell you how nervous they are on the first tee and tell you how much they are scared stiff of hitting the first tee shot. And, oh, my, my hand's shaking. I can't even put the ball on the tee. And, you know, you know, they're doing it to make themselves sound good because, of course, they hit a good shot down the hole. And it's like, you know, I overcome all the nerves. I hate all that. My view to the players was forget all that. This was about being empowered. Just think when you tee up and look down that fairway and everybody goes quiet and there's 25,000 people around the tee and another 25,000 down the fairway and around the back of green, all waiting for you to hit. And it all goes quiet. Rather than thinking, oh my God, I hope I get this ball airborne. I hope I don't mishit it or shank it. Think, no, if I nail it down the middle of this fairway, 60,000 people here are going to scream their lungs out. So rather than thinking, oh my God, I hope I don't miss or oh my God, on a putt or whatever, just think of the reaction of the crowd when this goes in. So rather than think over it, thinking, oh my God, I'm afraid, you're thinking, I can't wait until, because if I hold this putt, if I hit this shot in, I'm going to have a massive reaction. So you play to the player's ego. And I, I got this as a player myself. I don't know where it came to me. Uh, but playing in the 16th hole with Darren Clark on the last day in 2002 in the Belfry. And I had a putt. Uh, we were the last game on the golf course. And I had a putt for birdie from about seven feet. Um, I was the last guy to putt in the group. And I had a putt to go all square in the match. And it's 10 deep around the green. And we're the last game out that evening on the golf course. And of course, all the attention's on here. And of course, I'm nervous. And of course, my stomach is turning and all that. But for some reason, the man above whoever came and gave me this thought process to say, Paul, if you knock this putt in, this place, because I could feel the tension, you knock this putt in, this place is going to go ballistic. So standing over the putt, I couldn't wait to hit it. I couldn't wait to hit it and, and think, man, this, I got the power of, 25,000 people around this green in the palm of my hands. And of course, I nail the putt, I hold it. And of course, they did go crazy. So, you know, and, and rolling on to the winning putt then the following day, something similar. So rather than being on the back foot and, oh my God, I'm afraid I don't, you're thinking, I got control of these people. I got control. And that, that's where I think about, you know, go back to Dean and, 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 and I've spoken to some premiership coaches about this, you know, the, pre the, the, the pressure of a, of a penalty kick. Um, you know, rather than thinking, oh my God, you know, I should really score here. You're thinking, wow, I'm going to burst the back of the net here. And I got 60,000 people in the stadium or 80,000 people in Crow Park. 
Uh, maybe they're not all going to scream because of some away fans, but they're going to be uh, <laughs> they're going to be screaming should I make it? And and so you you know it's just basically a mindset of being empowered um, and playing to the player's ego as well. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, like I, I think that's a like from talking to different players and and Mossy Quinn, like you know the thought process that he has, it's just about recycling them memories of kicking them scores of when they've had their moments that just come into their head when they're stepping up for them pressure kicks when like i, I want to take this back now to bally bowden uh because we talked a lot about like leadership and how to build people's confidence and how to connect <coughs> people. you were very lucky enough to be able to talk to the bally bowden team when they were getting ready for the all ireland final the club final uh andy mcintyre invited you down was that a big moment? And, and what did you say to the lads? Because obviously they just went out and performed that day. I thought, like, if, if I'm being open and honest with you, I thought they really kind of barely got over the line with some of the results that year. But when they got to Crow Park, they just kind of seemed to let loose and unwind and put in a great performance. Yeah, listen, there's not a lot I could say, really, to be honest. I mean, it was a fabulous performance. In the very first minute, they went at it. I mean, Donegal goalkeeper, of course. Um, my dad was very proud of that, so they gave him a reason to cheer for Bally Bowden. Um, but from the very first minute, they just took control of the game. You know, they weren't favourites, and, and, and they went at it. It wasn't something I said, to be honest. I mean, listen, there's only I've got five minutes uh, to wish them good luck, and that's all it was, to be honest. There was no great words of, uh, of urgency. Um, I, I live... Um, I lived down the road and they said, look, would you come up and just wish the lads good luck as they get in the bus? And that's pretty much what it was. And they obviously knew my connection with, uh, we're playing with Bally Bowden, Michael Darrell was there too. And, and yeah, you know, it's, 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 again, it's a continuity, you know, and I always felt there's an affinity, you know, and I, I don't know if the GA players feel it. I'm sure they do, but I certainly feel it in golf. I mean, you take somebody that I played um, who has played Ryder Cup for Europe, I immediately have an affinity of them with them because uh, you know I was that soldier as well. And you know when you meet somebody who might be been before you, uh, or even somebody who's after you, you know there's that general, there is that connection, there is that bond uh, that you're following in their footsteps and uh, of representing the, the the team. And and I, I guess that was the only connection really. You know, as an ex an ex Bally Bowden hurler and footballer, uh, that was it. And just wishing them good luck. And uh, there was there was no there was no great words of wisdom. Uh, it was a tremendous performance by them. It really was. I was so happy for Andy. Yeah, no, it was. It was, it was a great performance. Uh, speaking of a Vincent's man, now we have them in the club championship. So I hope you don't go near them now again. I hope that's your goal. <laughs> You've done your role. You don't need to go back. But I actually just want to talk about your dad and your connection with Donegal. Because I, I think we owe your dad a massive, massive thank you for getting rid of Jim McGuinness. He, uh, <laughs> was it him that introduced uh, Dermot De Jim to Dermot Desmond? Yeah, it was him. Yeah, it was him. The, the, the two of them. Uh, basically, I was playing in Port Rush in the Irish Open. Uh, I don't know when it was, five, six years ago. And uh, Jim had been in Dad's ear. They're from the same part of Donegal. And, and uh, I obviously uh, had known Jim for the two. I learned a lot from Jim, I have to say. I, very, very smart, very clever. And we certainly haven't heard the end of, of Jim McGuinness. There's a lot more to come from him. Um, and uh, he's, yeah, you know, and he had this idea. He didn't say it to me, but he had this idea that he shared with dad about, you know what, I'm thinking about maybe going into the soccer business and blah, blah, blah. So basically dad says, well, why don't you make your way to Port Rush? Um, he'll be playing in the program. I wasn't playing with him. Uh, I wasn't playing with Dermot. Um, so anyway, the two of them took off and they hunted down Dermot. And uh, Dermot had known about Jim because I had mentioned to him uh, 
you know, every time we mock, Dermot Der- is a big fan of the GA and a big fan of Dublin. Um, uh, he's helped in a lot of ways over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, he was very familiar with Jim and of course he was delighted to meet him and the two of them had a coffee and a chat and one thing led to another and Jim was brought over to Celtic and, and kind of off he went. So yeah, it was dad's instigation, um, uh, that, that introduction to Dermot. And then Dublin went on and went five in a row. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm not finished that. yet either. No, no, absolutely. Well, look, Paul, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your stories. like. I, as I said, I've gone to a few of your talks. I've I've gone through lots of articles of interviews you've done. I will check out that YouTube of the London Business School with yourself and Alex Ferguson. Sure. Um, uh, and you probably will feature in a lot of my college assignments from here on in. So, <laughs> I appreciate you giving your time. Uh, really enjoyed it. I hope uh, I hope people get a lot out of this. I'm sure they will. And uh, look, thanks again. You're welcome. All the best.